You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Well, good morning, guys. How are we? All right. Uh, my name is Brandon Clements. I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't met, we're so glad to have you with us. And uh, today is actually the last week in our Embodied series that we've been going through the last eight weeks. Uh, this is our Q&A week, and I hope you're excited. Uh, let's, let's actually start today by seeing if we're on the same page about something else, the way that we approach the Bible. So years ago, one of our pastors met with a young woman who was a member at the time, and she wanted to ask a few questions about the very same issues we've been talking about in our series. So they sat down, and the conversation was probably about an hour, and it was very positive and cordial and all that. At one point while they were talking, she said something to the effect of, I just have a hard time accepting what the Bible says about sexual relationships outside of God's design. It just doesn't seem right to me. And it seems like anyone who is in love should be able to express that love. She was filtering scripture through what she had been conditioned to believe based on what seemed right to her. So our pastor said that to her and then went on to say that the problem with that approach is if it's an acceptable approach, that means other people get to do that too. For example, he said, let's say there's a man in another country, another culture, who routinely physically strikes his wife. And he believes it's okay because wives are husbands' property where he lives. And he reads Ephesians 5 that says husbands should instead love their wives like Christ loves the church. And he says, no, I don't think I will do that because that does not seem right to me. And he said, wouldn't you prefer that God have the opportunity to confront what seems right to that man and tell him that what seems right to him is in fact not right? And she said very comedically, of course, yay, God, get him. And our pastor said, me too. But the problem is that would make you inconsistent. You can't say it's okay for you to approach the Bible one way, but then demand others approach it a different way. If you do not want to afford others the opportunity to reject portions of Scripture because it doesn't seem right to them, you can't reject portions of Scripture based on what seems right to you. And what she said next is amazing. She said sarcastically, I am not enjoying this conversation at all right now because I'm pretty sure you are right and I don't like it one bit. And he just said, yeah, I know. But for what it's worth, I'm in the same predicament. And so is everyone else. Everyone has to decide who gets a deciding vote. Will I let God, through God's word, shape my moral intuitions more than I let my cultural moment shape my moral intuitions? Or will I go with what I've been conditioned to think by my time and place? And I tell you that story because I I know it's relevant to some of you, because of when and where we live, what the Bible says about sexuality and gender and all things connected to it doesn't always seem right. It doesn't. But for other people and other places who are wrong, you want the Bible to be able to confront what seems right to them. And I don't think you can have it both ways. 
As I like to say, I would never call you a hypocrite, but I am worried that someone else might. During this series, we got a lot of questions sent in. Thank you for that. They cover a, a wide variety of subjects. We're going to release a podcast to try and address a bunch of them. For today, there was one topic that was clearly the most often to be brought up. So let me read you some of the questions about this one particular topic. What does the Bible have to say about being transgender? How do we love people who are transgender and show them Jesus? How does the Bible talk about genders when it comes to intersex situations? Being born with both genitals and chromosomal abnormalities. Thanks. As parents, how do we handle our kids seeing some of their friends come out as transgender? I work for a company who has promoted claiming your pronouns as part of introductions. Recently, there's been a push to add pronouns to email signatures. As a Christian, how should I respond? How do we as Christians respond to family members and close loved ones who are LGBTQ? Specifically, how do we accept them without confirming their lifestyle? And if the person is trans, do we use their preferred name and pronouns? Again, these are people who are close to us. So that's just a sampling of the questions that we received. There were many more. Uh, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 19. This is where we'll jumpstart our discussion for today. Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. And one of the ways that I've heard people try to discredit or dismiss the Bible's teaching on sexuality is by saying something like, well, Jesus never even talks about homosexuality or gender, so it's obviously not a big deal. Now, that's not a very thoughtful argument for at least a few reasons. Uh, first, the red letters are not more inspired than the black ones. The same Spirit of God inspired them both. Jesus did his earthly ministry by the power of the Holy Spirit, and people like Paul and Moses and all the other biblical authors were inspired by the same Spirit of God. Now, they were all either pointing towards Jesus or extrapolating on what he did and said. I'm not saying they're all equally important people. I'm saying Christians have historically believed that the Bible is morally consistent in no small way due to God's Spirit inspiring the writing of all of it. Second, just because Jesus didn't feel the need to directly address something in his teaching ministry does not negate the other places Scripture addresses it. Jesus also didn't explicitly address idols. He never mentioned that word once because he spent his time in Jewish context where everyone already knew idolatry was sinful. In the same way, in a Jewish context, everyone was already clear on God's design for human sexuality. It's times where someone is writing into a different context where this subject is covered more explicitly. And then third, he actually does cover the topic of gender and marriage and sexuality in Matthew chapter 19. So start with me in verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him. So they're about to ask Jesus what amounts to a trick question. They want to trap him and get him to say something wrong so that they can hold it against him. And tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? What they're asking about here is a specific passage in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 24. They want to know how Jesus reads it. More or less, the substance of their question is about no-fault divorce. Jesus answers by quoting from Genesis 1 and 2, and he reminds them of what marriage is before answering their question about divorce. Verse 4, he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? 
and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. That's him saying what marriage is. Then here's the application and the answer to their question. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus says no on no-fault divorce. God's design is that marriage be a covenant across difference. Male and female, I'm not leaving you the same way Jesus isn't leaving me. Verse 7, they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? That's a bit of a misread by them. Moses didn't command it in Deuteronomy 24. He describes the situation where it happens. The sentence begins with, if a man divorces his wife and gives her a certificate of divorce, and then goes on to complete his sentence. Verse 8, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Moses had to put up with it, but it's not how it was supposed to be. Verse 9, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. So Jesus just quoted from the first two chapters of Genesis, scripture that we spent a lot of time looking at during this series. And I want to make sure you're catching that Jesus just affirmed a lot of what we've been talking about. And he affirms the Genesis account. He basically says, these are all things we can and should learn from Genesis 1 and 2, that God created us embodied and gendered, male and female, that marriage is a covenant across difference, man and woman. (laughs) All of me belongs to all of you. I'm not going anywhere and you're not going anywhere. And all sexual expression is reserved exclusively inside that covenant across gender difference. Verse 10, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. So the disciples say, wow, Jesus, that's really permanent and scary. If that's the case, maybe it's better not to get married. Verse 11, but he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. So basically, well, then maybe you shouldn't get married. But then verse 12 is where we will zoom in for our time. Jesus says, For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. All right, so let's talk about this verse and what it means. Uh, Eunuchs were a specific class of people who did not participate in sexual relationships. Most often, they did not have the capacity for sex. And Jesus gives three reasons why someone might be in that situation. He says, some have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. That would be chosen celibacy. This would apply to a variety of people, but calls to my mind those of you who may be same-sex attracted and are practicing celibacy as you faithfully follow Jesus. He also says some have been made eunuchs by someone else. As one example, back then in certain environments, if you were a soldier who specifically protected a queen or a princess, often they would castrate you to make sure that you didn't try anything around the queen or princess. And then lastly, Jesus says, Some have been eunuchs from birth. This would include people who were born without clear or unambiguous signs of being male or female. 
And here's why that's so helpful, because one of the biggest arguments you'll hear for gender only being a social construct is based on the fact that some people who were born who don't have obvious physical male or female anatomy. The broad term used today is intersex. People will say because there are cases where it isn't clear which gender a baby is at birth, gender is therefore not binary. They're not actually two categories, male and female, and instead it's all a continuum, a spectrum. According to statistics cited by the United Nations, 0.05 to 1.7% of the world's population is labeled intersex. You should know that uh, that category includes multiple diagnoses that do not at all cause biological gender to be ambiguous. In fact, uh, just one diagnosis called late-onset adrenal hyperplasia actually makes up for 88% of what is now called intersex, and in no way does that condition create ambiguity as to biological gender. So if you just control for the largest conditions that com compromise what is often termed intersex that do not cause ambiguity about biological gender, the actual percentage of the population that would qualify as, quote, eunuchs who have been so by birth, if we're counting Jesus's language, drops to a 0, .0 number percentage. So at most, a few in 10,000. But none of that really matters because Jesus affirms and acknowledges that it does happen. There are eunuchs who have been so from birth. And I want to draw attention to the dignity that Jesus bestows on people in that situation. He doesn't choose, like their society at the time would have, to call them deformed or second-class citizens or anything of the sort. In fact, he uses their existence as a way of explaining and highlighting a noble calling of singleness to his disciples. So Jesus actually upholds and affirms the dignity of people who do not biologically fit neatly in the categories of male and female. So at the same time, but in the very same conversation, he upholds the teaching of Genesis 1 that God created humanity, male and female. He reiterates that there are two categories of humans determined by people's biological makeup, and he acknowledges, yes, rare exceptions to the rule do exist. And those people should be loved and accepted and cared for and seen as the image bearers of God that they are. And it is still true that God created humanity as male and female two categories with grace and compassion and understanding for those whom there is biological ambiguity as to which category they fall into. So in summary, the two categories, male and female, don't diminish the value of those who might be biological exceptions. And the exceptions don't nullify the categories. So do you see why Jesus was such a compelling teacher and yet frustrated so many people? He just bobs and weaves with wisdom and grace and truth and love. Okay, so that's how Jesus speaks into this topic. In conjunction with the Bible's teaching that we've already covered in this series about how we relate to our bodies, that we're not trapped inside a body that isn't representative of the real us. That's ancient Gnosticism with a modern coat of paint on it. So now let's talk about where our society is on the subject. And at this point, you can pay tens of thousands of dollars to get a college degree on this topic. Most of what you will learn will never have even been in the same room as the truth, but they'll be glad to make money off of you. Which I'm only bringing up to say there's no way I could possibly cover all of the different angles of this today. I'm just going to try to hit some broad strokes. So inside the subject of gender, there are those who would say that their body, specifically their biological gender, does not match the person or the gender they feel themselves to be. The term that's been created for this is gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is 
currently included in the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostical and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, often called the DSM, and it is diagnosed as a mental disorder. It's the very real sense of feeling ill at ease within your own body, specifically as it relates to gender. There are many reasons someone might feel ill at ease with their body, but this is about gender specifically. And I hope that week one of this series was helpful as it relates to all of our relationships with our bodies, because while I never explicitly mentioned gender dysphoria in the sermon, it, it certainly was one of the things on my mind as I spoke. So as Christians, how do we respond to all of the gender identity stuff that is out there? For starters, I think we should follow the example of Jesus and do our absolute best to bob and weave with grace and truth, with wisdom and love. I would argue that as Christians, the way we respond to anything is that we have compassion, mercy, kindness, empathy, that those things would be readily apparent in our responses readily apparent, because we know what it's like to be weak, to struggle, to be a sinner in need of help. We don't all struggle in the same ways, but we know what it's like to struggle. I don't know what it's like to deal with gender dysphoria. It seems like it would be incredibly difficult, a huge, painful challenge. So while I don't pretend to know what it's like specifically, I can relate to it generally because I know what it's like to struggle. So empathy and compassion should be easy to spot in us. Now, it gets very tricky when you live in a space and time that claims that disagreement necessarily is a failure to love. That disagreement itself is a form of hate and phobia. Now, of course it isn't. I love my wife to death, and I disagreed with her about something recently. We had a spirited exchange of ideas around said disagreement. I neither hate nor am afraid of my wife when I disagree with her. And I neither hate nor am afraid of anyone with gender dysphoria, regardless of what someone might choose to believe. The place at which I disagree is not that someone might claim to feel like their biological gender doesn't match the gender they feel themselves to be. I believe you truly feel that way. The place we disagree is about what that means. That's where we disagree. So here's how people talk about it today with the words assign and identify. People will say sex is assigned at birth. Gender is how I identify. But then you can also say that you aren't the sex you were assigned at birth. So someone might say at birth I was assigned male, but I am not actually, not actually male. I'm female because I identify as female. And this is where I begin to disagree because biological sex is not assigned. You have XX chromosomes or XY chromosomes. You're male or female. It does not require someone to assign it. That's like me going outside and finding a tree and saying, I assign this as a tree. It already was. My assigning had nothing to do with it. <coughs> and identify. Where I identify is what I feel that I am, regardless of what I actually am. And I would say that feeling like you are something does not make you that thing, regardless of what the feeling is and what the thing is. And I'm pretty sure our society sees it that way too in every other category but gender. I can give you a somewhat recent example. I don't know if you remember Rachel Dolezal. This was a handful of years ago. Uh, Rachel had been serving as the president of the NAACP chapter in Spokane, Washington. Except the problem was that Rachel is white and she'd been telling everyone she was black and eventually was found out. 
And she said inside she feels like a black person and she identifies as black. She was interviewed on a TV show and a panel of black women talked to her about this. She said, why can't I have the right to identify how I identify and I'll give you the right? And one of the hosts responds, Rachel, Rachel, I think it's kind of hard because you're not black. To grow up as a minority in any environment is to have a different experience than to grow up a majority. To grow up black in America is quite often to have a different experience that you can't just claim as your own once you're an adult. You haven't shared those experiences. And nearly everyone agreed that she could not just claim to be African-American when she was not, in fact, African-American. Feeling like you are something does not make you that thing. So the fact that everyone can see this clearly in other categories but this one and the increasing pressure to go along with current gender ideology makes me feel like we are living through a real-life version of the emperor's new clothes. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the Hans Christian Andersen short story, where some con artists claim to have made new clothes for an emperor and tell him they are invisible to anyone dumb or unfit for office. Of course, there are no clothes but everyone wants to be seen as a noble citizen. So everyone just keeps saying, what wonderful clothes, what wonderful clothes, even though the emperor isn't wearing any. Until a child in the crowd finally says, but the emperor isn't wearing any clothes. And finally, the adults start looking at each other like, you see it too, right? Right? There was just so much pressure to be seen in a certain way that they wouldn't say out loud what was obvious. You know that feeling like you were something doesn't make you that thing, right? The emperor doesn't have clothes on. You see that, right? But there is great cost in being one of the people to say that in the midst of immense social pressure. Ironically, J.K. Rowling is actually a great example of this. It's hard to be more beloved than to be the author of Harry Potter. But years ago, from a non-Christian feminist perspective, she spoke out clearly against the fervor of the transgender movement with a simple message that it was hurting biological women. Women who had fought long and hard for their rights. And even her beloved status did not protect her from public wrath, chronicled in the podcast, The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling. Or as one person joked on social media, I can tell you what decade it is based on what group hates J.K. Rowling. But no matter the pressure, when the emperor has no clothes, the loving thing to do is to bear witness to it. One component of this that can cause confusion is the topic of gender stereotypes and roles. And these are different considering your time and place. But in ours in the past 50 years, they are some version of men like to burp and hunt and play sports and women like dresses and dolls and cooking. But then, of course, some men don't like burping and hunting. I don't. Some men don't like sports. Some girls don't like dresses and prefer Legos to baby dolls. There are also temperament stereotypes. Men are aggressive and assertive. Women are more nourishing and agreeable. 
So what do you do if you have a male who is more agreeable than most of his peers and has no interest whatsoever in watching football? Or a female who shows more characteristics that would traditionally be thought of as masculine? One of the best books I read uh, preparing for the series is called The Genesis of Gender by Abigail Favalli. She's a former gender studies professor who converted to Catholicism, so the transition she made is fascinating. There are obviously things that I would disagree with her about, but I also would not want to argue with her because she is brilliant. And she traces much of current gender ideology through different waves of feminism, which ironically started with many Christian women campaigning for basic rights. And here's one observation she makes in the book. She says, there's a profound irony here. Through the vehicle of feminist theory, the concept of gender has been displaced, has displaced manhood and womanhood from bodily sex. Now, unmoored from the body altogether, gender is defined by the very cultural stereotypes that feminism sought to undo. In other words, when a girl recognizes that she does not fit the stereotypes of girlhood, she is now invited to question her sex rather than the stereotype. Question her sex rather than the stereotype. That's exactly the problem. Instead of coming to the cool-headed conclusion that gender stereotypes are culturally defined, somewhat malleable, and exist on a spectrum, we instead were like, what if we just change a person's sex? I once heard a psychologist talk about this, and he said roughly 10% of biological males have a temperament that is on average more feminine than the average female. Do you know what that means? Absolutely nothing other than what I just said. That's it. That's all it means. Their temperaments just happen to be on that side of the spectrum. That's it. It does not make them actually not male in any way. So let's just make a turn toward the practical, and, and I'll do my best to offer some wisdom on how we might handle this. And I say all this with a lot of, a lot of humility. Uh, let's start very personally. Uh, if you experience some amount of gender dysphoria, I, I want you to know that we are glad that you're here. We do not hate you. We are not phobic of you. We want Jesus for you. We want health for you. We want wholeness and holiness for you. And we would love it if God would use us to be part of that process. And I would just add that I don't think our society's suggestions are going to actually solve the problem that you want solved. Next, let's move to the layer of interacting with a friend or loved one and how we behave out in the world as we interact with folks who identify as transgender. I'll tell you one way that this issue is different, even from homosexuality and how we treat our, our gay and lesbian friends and family, is that this one comes with the demand for compelled speech. To refer to someone as a, a new name or certain pronouns. So there is more that you are asked to do. And I think there is a legitimate question there of, at what point am I participating? It's a question I think is necessary for us to wrestle with. This question was sent in, uh, which is what I think captures the nature of the predicament. Uh, it's a bit long, but hang with me to the end. It, it pays off. This person said, hello, I find my conscience torn about using a person's preferred pronouns when they are contrary to that person's biology. When an altered mental status patient asks an EMT, do you see that ghost? 
The EMT's training compels him to answer, I believe you see it. They are not trained to answer yes and validate the patient's hallucinations. On one hand, I feel a similar conviction that I ought not to bow to the spirit of our age, spreading what I believe to be absolute nonsense and caving to what could be a play for social power. Honoring the request seems like it might avoid rocking the boat in the short term, but be difficult to pedal back in longer effort to witness. Know how I've been calling you she for the past two years? Well, it's time to stop pretending. But maybe that's arrogant and legalistic. I certainly wish I thought it was. On the other hand, I recognize our call to be hospitable and gentle. And maybe I'm clinging to a right I could relinquish. Additionally, I realize that a growing portion of our culture can't or won't sympathize with my stance. To disregard someone's preferred pronouns, even if that person is not present, it seems like I might as well be saying, Hi, my spirit animal is Adolf Hitler. Would you kindly direct me to the nearest cross burning? <laughs> Unlike our chili cook-off, there was not an award for best questions submitted. But if there was, I think we just read the winner. That's pretty much it. That's, that's the predicament. And I'll, I'll give you my most honest answer. I, I don't exactly know, but I think it depends on the person and the situation, and I humbly think it calls for what I would call relational wisdom with a good dose of courage when necessary. And I do think the biblical category of conscience is applicable here where we can ask the Holy Spirit for wisdom according to the situation and then act according to our conscience. I'll tell you what I would do, and, and full disclosure, I, I don't have anyone in my life with any proximity who identifies as something other than their biological gender, but if I did, here's how I, I think I might approach it. I think I'd call them by whatever name they request. If you say your name is John, I'll call you John. If you say your name is Jane, I'll call you Jane. Because that's already what I do with literally everyone else that I know. If I meet you, you tell me your name or how you want me to refer to you, and that's how I would refer to you. In a way, that's the only way we know how to refer to each other. Unless you know someone when they're young and their parents tell you their child's name, then you only know what to call people because what they tell you to call them. So I would call someone by whatever name they request that I call them because I already do that anyway. And then for pronouns, that's not how you address someone. That's how you talk about someone who isn't present. So I would try really hard to just use that person's first name when I refer to him or her. That's what I would try to do and just never use a pronoun to replace it, if at all possible. So if Jane would now like to be referred to as John, I would start calling Jane John. And then when I was talking about John, I would try not to say he or she and would just keep saying John. If I worked somewhere that required me to announce my pronouns, I might do it if I feel like I had to, but I would try not to, if at all possible, out of a desire to not participate in the emperor's clothes game. But I do think that depending on the circumstance, there, there could be a place where in wisdom you have to draw a line and say, no, I, I can't participate in this particular act at my job because doing so violates my conscience and is unloving and untruthful to humans loved by Jesus. And I think we should develop a category for losing our jobs over certain things severe enough. We wouldn't be the first Christians to do so, not by a long shot. And I'm not saying you should do those things necessarily. I'm saying I think that's how I would try to handle it. A, 
The way I would say it is a general posture of minimum necessary disruption with a category for drawing a line in necessary places. Because when I interact in all of those environments, in the back of my mind at all times, I'm thinking, I want Jesus for you. I want Jesus for you. Whoever I'm talking to, I want Jesus for them. And I know if they meet Jesus, then he's going to change everything, just like he has in my life. So I don't want to first focus on the things I know Jesus would change. I want to focus on Jesus himself. If I earn the opportunity to speak into that person's life, Jesus is who I want to talk about first and foremost. Not a debate about gender, orientation, or expression, or any other words our culture obsesses over. And if that conversation did come up, I would feel fine to tell someone, it's true. Jesus disagrees with you on this topic. That's true. So it could be that he is wrong, or it could be that you were wrong. Which is why it's more important to focus more on whether or not he was who he said he was. If Jesus is who he says he is, then I've got to go with what he says, no matter the subject. But if he isn't, then who cares what he thinks about anything? So we can talk about this particular aspect of it for sure, but it's not the big idea. Jesus is the big idea. Is he the son of God? Did he die and rise to pay for our sin and redeem us? Does he really save us by grace, no matter who we are or what we've done? That's what I want to talk about first. So as much as it's within my power, I don't want to focus on what he says about particular issues before I focus on who he says he is and what he says he came to accomplish. And then when the moments arise, I pray for wisdom to respond full of both grace and truth, just like Jesus is. And I would feel free to tell anyone, when someone meets Jesus, he's going to change way more than just your view of sexuality or self-identity. Way more. It will include those things for sure, but they may not even be the starting point. So I would want to be known as a person who talks about Jesus more than I talk about anything else, including gender and pronouns. But because I love him and believe in him so deeply, I wouldn't be afraid to bear witness to his thoughts on the matter either. Because he loves people struggling with gender dysphoria very, very much. He created their bodies with great care. And he loves those of us who struggle with different things just the same. We know this because he offered his own body as a sacrifice for us all. Christ took the fury of his particular time and place upon himself bodily. He endured the mocking, the cursing, the hatred. And while he did so, he stretched out his arms in sacrificial love. He prayed for those who were murdering him, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He embodied grace and truth in a way that the world has not been able to stop thinking about since. So may we follow the embodied Son of God, our Savior, in that way. And may his grace and truth and love and wisdom be readily apparent in us. Please pray with me.